the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Thank you, Simon. Uh, Good morning. It is such a joy to be with you and to carry on in our, let's be honest, epic but also slightly mammoth journey through John. Whether you have been here for every verse that we have covered so far, or whether this is your first experience of Come and See, whether you would consider yourself to be an expert now on the Gospel of John, or whether you have absolutely no idea what's going on, you are so welcome. I think this morning my declaration is that we are in this together. That might be slightly more for my benefit than for yours, because I think the technical term for this morning's reading is a beast of a passage. It's a lot, so please be with me in this. As well as being a passage that pulls absolutely none of its punches, it also comes with a need for some context. If you were here last week, Johnny spoke on the previous half of chapter 8, and he really helpfully reminded us of its geographical location in the temple, and also its um, historical calendar, I guess, kind of location at the Feast of Tabernacles. If you didn't catch it, I would really encourage you to. Those are important backdrops to this section as well. We are in the same place. We're at the same time. We've barely moved a couple of paces forwards. But there is something that shifts, I think, for today's verses. I think it's too easy sometimes to create for ourselves a really nice, easy, sanitized version of Jesus. Good morals, Jesus, is easier to palette, right? This is not that. What we are about to read is a man making a loud, angry defense of who he is and what he is doing. And he's doing that in the face of an angry mob. This is not a measured theological debate. This isn't a nice chat around the table. This is an angry back and forth that ends in an attempted murder. And it's crucial that we don't lose the rawness of that. That we don't lose the emotion and the importance of how this conversation happens as we come to read. So... Hopefully, having not scared you off too much, let's read together. We are reading from John chapter 8, from verse 31. Um, If you're in the Green Bibles, it is titled, Dispute Over Whose Children Jesus' Opponents Are. It's a mouthful of a title. Here we go. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? 
Jesus replied, very truly, I tell ye, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the work of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I've not come on my own, God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this, they exclaimed, now we know you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? told you it was a lot so where do we even start with that here we see a clashing hard-hitting confusing arguments about freedom and identity about who Jesus is and who these Jews are This dialogue covers a lot of theological, cultural, spiritual ground in quite a short space of time. And there's no way that we could do all of that justice this morning. So I think the most helpful place to center ourselves today is around those two themes of freedom and identity. And I think the most helpful place to do that from is the question in verse 53. Who do you think you are? 
Who does Jesus think he is? Who do the crowd think they are? Who do we think we are? Jesus makes an amazing declaration to a group of Jews teetering around the edges of following him. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What an opener. That feels like a great place to start a conversation. And surely their response should be amazing. Yes, I want some of that. Instead, we get something closer to, whoa, don't you know who we are? These Jews who were living under Roman rule, who in their history had been enslaved by prisoners to or ruled by the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the list goes on. They say, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be free? Their declaration of freedom is simply historically inaccurate. But whether that's based off an attempt to be obtuse and score points in an argument, or whether they understand that Jesus is not talking about physical freedom, the commentators disagree. Their emotions are the same. These people are offended by the very idea that they are not free. That anybody would dare to suggest such a thing. And this is where I think we have to be really clear that we don't get sanitized, easy pill to swallow Jesus. Because Jesus pushes full force into their offense. He doesn't knock the edges off what comes next. Not for them, nor for us. His response is, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. It isn't their external, physical freedom that Jesus is interested in, but their spiritual one. Being Abraham's descendants in terms of history, in terms of lineage, does not guarantee or give them freedom. Because Jesus is talking about a profoundly deeper freedom. That everyone who sins is a slave to sin, but there is a way to be free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This offense, this opening argument, I think sets up everything that follows. It's the spark that lights the fuse, as it were, for this argument's escalation. And it goes pretty far. Why? Well, I think it's a very human response. If we're honest, we struggle with the concept of freedom. With both the notion of having it 
and actually not having it. If we're honest, if I'm honest, isn't my response to Jesus fairly similar? If everyone who sins is a slave to sin, well, that includes me. And that includes you. Are we really much more comfortable with that than the first-hand listeners were? We live in a society that screams the importance of individual freedoms. That very similarly to this crowd shouts, who do you think we are? Of course we are free. But is that the reality? Or do we too find that everyone who sins is a slave to sin? I said that I think we struggle with the concept of freedom because I think we find ourselves caught between two things. Between wanting to join with these Jews, if we're honest, and argue with Jesus. To push back and say, of course, I am completely and utterly free to say, to be, to do what I want. And yet also kind of knowing that we're not. That if you actually float the idea of, okay, if you're free, then spend an entire day without complaining about anything. If you're free, spend an entire day without thinking one bad thing. If you're free, spend an entire day thinking less of yourself than others. To suddenly know that we fall so far short of all that is good but also of being free. And I wonder whether that leaves us wondering whether it's safer to stay in our known slavery. I think we find ourselves caught in the middle. To help us with that, I would love to tell you a story. But it's a story that I think should be prefaced with the information that I was actually a very well-behaved child, um, almost sickeningly so, um, and that this is one of the two things, two, on the list that my mum has of terrible things that Megan did. There are only two on the list. I think that needs to be known before I tell the story. It might have been paint, is a phrase that I still get quoted back to me fairly regularly, more than 20 years later, by both of my parents. Picture this. Dad is away. Mum is on crutches. And I know the rules about painting. It must not happen in my bedroom. Fair. It must, in fact, happen in the kitchen on the table, under full adult supervision. Also fair. But, I really want to paint. And mum is on crutches, so I am really quite confident her answer is going to be, no, of course you cannot get the paint out. So what if I'm careful? 
like really, really careful. And I won't do it on my desk, I'll do it on the bedroom floor, because that will be better. And I'll just use a little bit of paint. But now the paint is on the carpet, and cleaning it makes it worse. And I can't tell Mum, but she is going to find out. And I am an only child, so there is nobody else to blame. There is one solution that my seven-year-old brain came up with. Hide. And I found a great hiding place. It was a small cupboard, and the click of the lock shutting from the outside as I closed it behind me was very comforting because I could now not be found. The comfort was also tinged with some anxiety, because if I turned the light on in the cupboard, Mum would know where I was. And I was now locked in the dark for the rest of eternity, because if I, in fact, did anything to let Mum know where I was and let me out, she would find out about the paint. So this was my life now. I was going to spend the rest of it in the dark, in the cupboard. And that was okay with me. Because in my cupboard, I was free. I was free from mum finding out what I had done. In my dark, locked cupboard, I was free from mum's anger. If you ask me, I was in that cupboard for a serious amount of time. I can't actually tell you how long it was. Judged by mum's panic as she looked for me, I think it, it was a sizable chunk of time. But why tell you this story? Well, because locked in my cupboard, I was caught between two things. The freedom of my dark, locked, safe cupboard from what I had done. I was safe in my cupboard. But I was also Scared, in the dark, and completely trapped. And I wonder if actually that can feel a little bit familiar. I wonder if actually that is at the heart of this disagreement between Jesus and the Jews. The Jews assert that they are free. Jesus declares that sin holds them captive. What they consider their freedom is a comforting click into a locked, dark, trapped place. 
But what Jesus offers is complete freedom. What Jesus offers is the moment that my ever-forgiving, ever-amazing mum offered me when she found me and released me from my cupboard. Straight into her arms with a blubbed, it might have been paint. Because if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Goes beyond our tussled confusion about freedom. It goes beyond being about what we want and takes us out of the dark, scary, locked room into relationship and forgiveness from God. The freedom that the Jews thought they had was based on who they were and where they came from. The freedom Jesus offers is based on who he is and where he came from. And it's at this point that the argument between Jesus and the crowd escalates even further because it's not just about freedom, it's about identity. Theirs and Jesus's. For them, they stake their claim on their relationship with God. The only father we have, they say, is God himself. It's a compelling argument, but not for Jesus. Verses 42 to 47, if you've still got a Bible in front of you, are a pretty blow-by-blow unpicking of that argument. Jesus says, no. If God were your father, you would know me. You would hear me. You would love me. He goes as far as saying that they belong to the devil. And it feels hard and it feels harsh to hear. So why does he say it? Well, I think because the next section really drills down into our key question. Who do you think you are? Jesus' response here gets to the heart of that. They're not children of God because they do not resemble him. Jesus is clear, belonging to God is about so much more than hereditary lineage. It should shape the people of God, completely. My mum comes up quite a lot this morning, but this card sits in my bedroom, and it has done for quite a while. And when I catch a glimpse of it, I think a kind of wry smile comes over my face. Because it is partially true. But maybe not in the way you might think I would say that. Aged 27, I am now self-aware enough to know that I am my mother's daughter. Hard as I may have tried when I was younger, it is inescapable. It is in my sense of humour, it is in my mannerisms, it is in my often misplaced but utter commitment to the Welsh rugby team. 
I am my mother's daughter. I had one of those moments the other day when I was talking about what we could do in our garden, when I just stopped and went, oh, good grief, you have become mum. So why am I so like her? You can have the whole nature-nurture debate. But actually, at the heart of it, I am not like my mum because it is inevitable. Not because, however hard I tried, it was always going to happen. I'm like her because I have spent so much time with her. I'm like her because I know her so deeply that she has shaped who I am. And if I'm really honest, maybe we won't tell her, if I'm really honest, there are so many ways that for me, ending up like my mum would be the greatest compliment. But to end up like her in those ways doesn't happen by accident. It would take time from me. It would take effort from me to truly become like the best parts of her. It wouldn't happen regardless of what I did, if only. And that takes us back to our passage for today. Because I think the Jews would write a card that said, we don't have to try and be like Abraham and God and our fathers, because we just are. It's not about however hard we try, it's just inevitable. Don't you know who we are? And Jesus' response says, no. To be God's children, they should be chasing after who he is. He's very clear that their freedom and their identity don't rely on them, but on the son who sets them free but more that their actions betray who their master is. Betray their priorities. Betray that they are slaves to sin. I find it really interesting that if you look carefully at the passage, the crowd have nothing to say to that. They do not argue their case. I think I would. Maybe that's just my personality. But I think I would want to push back and be like, no, that's not what my behavior says about me. No, that's not what my belief says about me. That's not who I resemble. They have nothing to say in the face of it. Instead, they turn their attention to who Jesus is. Their answer to the problem Well, he must be an outsider, demon-possessed, simply deluded, or insane. But for the short amount of time we have left, I'm actually not, not too interested in who they think Jesus is, but more in who Jesus thinks he is. Because all of this heated argument hinges on that. Who do you believe? The crowd have their opinion. Jesus has his. 
And all of us this morning have to make a decision. Who do we side with? Jesus' claims are bold ones, to say the least. He has been in the Father's presence. He has come here from God. He knows God, who is his Father. Jesus is very clear that they should recognize him because of how he resembles and glorifies God. That all that he is points to the Father. And then, Jesus delivers the killer blow. The line that causes the crowd to stop their verbal onslaught, reach down and pick up stones to kill this man. It's six words. Blink and you'll miss them. But none of their significance is lost on this Jewish audience. Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. Beyond blasphemy in the crowd's eyes. For the first time in the Gospel of John, Jesus states not that he knows God, not that he has been in God's presence, but that he is God. That he is the God of the Old Testament. That he is the God of Abraham, who they claim as their father. That he is the God of all. It's the famous C.S. Lewis dilemma. That anyone who claims that they must be God is mad, bad, or telling the truth. The crowd ask Jesus, who do you think you are? His response, God. There's no apathy to that. There's no, okay, you think that, I think this, fine. Who do you think you are? God. The Jews have no comeback to that. So they try to kill him. They cannot leave a man who claims to offer complete freedom. To offer complete relationship with God. Who claims to be himself God. They cannot live with that. What about us? What is our response. We're going to have some time in a minute for some quiet and some reflection. For some of you, that will be a really comfortable, regular thing in your life. For some of you, it really won't be. And that's okay. But I would really encourage you to push past that discomfort and that awkward moment where it falls quiet and your brain just starts to wear on other things. To try and stop your mind from wandering too much. And to really take some time to sit in the quiet with these questions. 
That might be to think, that might be to pray, whatever works for you. Because I wonder which freedom you feel you are living in. The safety click locked dark cupboard or the open door. I wonder which father you see as your own. Who are you resembling? I wonder who you think Jesus is and who you think you are. I'm going to leave us some time to think and be.